Welcome to the Awaken Life Church podcast. For more information about our church, please visit awakenlifechurch.net. We hope you enjoyed this message by Vince Gaetto. Wow, what an entrance. My goodness, I cannot just need to have you introduce me everywhere I go. Bass playing barista. I love that. All right, give me a second here to set up my notes. How are you guys doing today? Yeah, that's right. Let's go. Actually, I'm going to move this back here. All right, so a little bit about me. Uh, my lovely wife, Stephanie. We've been married for nine years. Uh, we have a daughter that's seven. Uh, her name's Florence. She is very beautiful and hilarious. Um, <laughs> So, and other than that, you know, I'm just pretty much your typical millennial hipster. I'm looking forward to see what the sign is for that. Millennial hipster. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, I love the arts. I love music. I used to play in a band that traveled around. Um, I drink way too much coffee. Um, <laughs> uh, I love to talk about Bitcoin and how it works, even though I still don't know how it works. Uh, honestly. Um, <laughs> the good news is um, I've never, ever had a man bun. True story. Never had a man bun. Now, here, here's a testimony for you. <laughs> there was a time where uh, my best friend, he was the singer of my band, he had this glorious man bun, and I was coveting his man bun. I was like, oh, man, I wish I could rock that out. And I was thinking, maybe I could pull this off. You know, this was like five, six years ago when it was really in, and the Holy Spirit came upon me. <laughs> I was taken up into heaven, you know, and Jesus came around me, and, and he said, Vince, I'm going to have to give you a word of knowledge. The man bun is your generation's mullet. Don't do it. <laughs> All kidding aside, kidding aside, kidding aside. <laughs> so another thing about me is that I grew up in church. Um, I loved church growing up. I loved learning about the Bible, and I used to think that that was because I was awesome, like, I was special. Uh, but really, it was because my dad was awesome, and he was special. Uh, my dad was a Sunday school rock star, absolute rock star. I mean, um, I actually kind of feel bad uh, if you didn't grow up having him as your Sunday school teacher because he was that good. Uh, I mean, really, uh, just really made it engaging. Uh, you know, I never saw it as something tedious. I saw it as something really enjoyable. Um, so, but unfortunately, as I got older, you know, and I was probably knew a little bit more about the Bible than my peers, uh, I started to go to my head a little bit. I got a little, got a little conceited about it. I played it off real well, but, you know, deep down, I felt really good about myself. And so, <laughs> and so this kind of like stained some of my beliefs a little bit. And one of those beliefs was, you know, why do people not believe in Jesus? You know, people who, you know, been evangelized to. Uh, and why do people walk away from the faith? That was something like I couldn't understand. I just had this remarkable experience in church and it just didn't make sense. So my thought was, oh, well, people don't believe in Jesus because they love to sin. You know, they're stubborn. Um, they just really just want to, you know, do crazy stuff. Uh, and there, you know, maybe some truth to that. Uh, I had verses to back that up. Uh, and then the reason why people walked away from the church was because they, you know, they just didn't have enough faith, you know. Uh, they just, you know, they tried, but they just didn't really try hard enough. 
And so I believed that for a while until I started kind of traveling and, uh, you know, talking to people maybe outside my bubble. And I started having these conversations that really started to surprise me uh, because people did not have the same experience that I did growing up. And at the root of a lot of their stories, the, the trend that I started to notice was that there was spiritual abuse. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. You probably think like, oh my gosh, spiritual abuse on Father's Day. Holy smokes, man, that's a little too heavy. Uh, but, but, you know, consider yourself lucky because I knew a pastor real well, and he spoke on sexual sin and porn on Mother's Day. So, you're welcome. You're getting off easy. <laughs> but we're going to be talking about uh, spiritual abuse. So what is spiritual abuse? Sometimes it's better to start kind of what it's not. So spiritual abuse is not your pastor confronting you about sin in your life. That's actually an act of love. Uh, it takes a lot of courage um, and to have those brave conversations. And if you have someone uh, that can speak into your life, that's amazing. You should be thankful for that. Um, spiritual abuse is not a bad sermon. Um, I mean, I know sometimes there's some boring sermons out there, and you're like, this is abuse. But, like, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not necessarily even bad theology, although it, it can lead to that. Um, because I think we all would admit that there's probably one thing that we're maybe off a teensy bit, you know, theologically speaking, and, you know, we change. So, uh, that's not really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about spiritual abuse. So my definition of spiritual abuse, and a lot of pastors would have a similar uh, definition, is whenever a person or a institution uses their religious influence to manipulate, coerce, or exploit another person for their own personal gain. Hold that rest for a second because that took a while for me to even to say so for me, I'll be honest, like I haven't probably experienced the spiritual abuse that some people have, but I did have an experience, and this is what started to make me really reconsider a lot of the conversations I had with people. Uh, several years ago, I was at a church. It was a great church, by the way, amazing church, not this church. Um, and I was in ministry school, and it was an amazing ministry school, and they would have revivalists coming in all the time, and they had this one revivalist come in, and he was a great speaker. I genuinely enjoyed him. Um, and so, you know, what's common for ministry school is that the revivals would come, and we make this line, and he's imparting, and he's putting his hands on people, and, you know, cool stuff happens. Um, and so he comes to me, and he starts putting his hand on my head, and he starts pushing me back. And I'm not talking like a little, you know, because I get it. Like, you're fired up, you know. I get it, you know. You're, you're expecting glory, you know. But we're not talking like a little push. We're talking like WWF, SmackDown. And honestly, it took me off guard, but like I quickly caught myself and was like, uh, whoa, I'm not going to go down like that. <laughs> That's not cool. And, and he just kept going. And I'm just I'm thinking, like, oh, my gosh, like, what do I do? Like, this is awkward. Like, I, I, I'm not going to just give up. And then suddenly he starts prophesying over me and saying, oh, you're, you're an overthinker. You analyze too much. You know, you just, need, like, you just need to let go, receive what the Holy Spirit has for you. And, you know, like, some of that actually is somewhat true and <laughs> with me. And it's a wound that I have. And in this brief moment, I started thinking, like, oh, my gosh, like, maybe he's right. And just that brief moment caught me off guard, and he was able to 
toppled me to the ground, and, and you know, he just kind of moved on in the line. And, and I do want to say, full clarification, um, you might be, you know, new here and thinking, like, I knew it. I knew it. I've seen that. I knew it was fake. I've had a revivalist put their hands on me and feel the full fire of God come down and knock me off my feet. So, you know, just keep, just keep uh, pushing through. <laughs> Um, but in this moment, I'm laying on the ground. I'm thinking, like, what just happened? <laughs> like, this, like, this is really weird. I do not feel good about this at all. And the worst part was, like, the weeks later, I'm, you know, I actually felt like I made a mistake. Like, I did something wrong. And, I, you know, it really got in my head. And uh, it, was, it wasn't until I actually was reading uh, another, you know, prophet, and he was actually talking about this very thing, and it instantly, like, broke off, and I was like, all right, here we go. Like, I knew it. That was messed up, and I realized that this person um, had spiritually abused me. He was using his religious influence. Like, I trusted him, you know, as I got up. I, you know, believed in his message, uh, and so I trusted him, and, you know, he used me to looked like he was, you know, had the power of God flowing through him, which I believe he probably had many times where it did actually happen, but this was not one of them. <laughs> and so this on the Richter scale is probably pretty small, but it's still something that uh, I think affects a lot of Christians, and I think it affects a lot of non-believers. And so the question that, you know, I'm asking today and that I, I kind of started thinking about because uh, when I had these conversations with people, I would tell, I was a good Christian, I would say, hey, you know, this is before I had my experience, uh, you know, that really stinks what happened to you. But you need to move on. You know, you need to, you know, get after it. You know, Jesus was, loves you. He wants you. And they'd be like, oh, okay, you know. And, you know, I probably was saying the textbook right thing, but it was 100% ineffective. And it made me start to think, like, okay, what is Jesus's response to spiritual abuse? So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to start in the Old Testament, um, and we're kind of go through just like kind of like a short little, short little trip. Um, there's a, probably a lot of cases, but I'm just going to highlight some of the bigger ones. So uh, probably like one of the the biggest um, cases of like spiritual abuse that you see is with um, the uh, death of Eli and his sons. Uh, or what led up to it, I should say. Um, so Eli was the high priest, so he was in charge of the sacrificial system, uh, and his sons, you know, assisted him with that. Now, the problem was is that Eli's sons were actually using the sacrificial system to steal food from the people. It's a little more complicated than that, but that was essentially what they were doing. They also were sleeping around. They were sleeping with women who were ministering at the tent of meeting, um, and most likely it wasn't consensual. It was probably something else, uh, but they were getting away with it because they were the, they were the uh, caretakers of the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. So no one could touch these guys, and they could do whatever they want. And so uh, a prophet comes and says, like, you're going to die if you don't actually change, and they don't change. And sure enough, Eli's sons die in battle. When Eli hears the news, he dies. Now, it continues. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is actually captured, and where the tabernacle was at the time was in Shiloh, and it was destroyed. And never again would there be sacrifices made at that place. So let's fast forward a couple hundred years, and uh, now there's two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in both kingdoms, there's this kind of unholy marriage between the, the wealthy elite 
and the many, uh, the majority of the prophets. So the wealthy are exploiting the poor, um, and they also are worshiping other gods. And instead of the majority of the prophets calling them out on that, um, most of them are actually teaming up with them and would, you know, give them prophetic words and proclaim. And the wealthy were seeking this uh, because the prophets was their key to um, having, you know, control of the people and, and kind of keeping the peace. So this, and, um, this was a major problem that Isaiah called out, Micah called out, and Jeremiah called out. And so the northern kingdom is eventually destroyed. And so is the, the southern kingdom uh, by the Babylonians. And they actually um, take a major part of the population back to uh, Babylon. And the Solomon's temple, which was where the sacrifices were being done and was again being used to exploit the people, uh, was destroyed. And so uh, in captivity, uh, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, he's reflecting on what's happening and what has happened. And so... I'm going to read a passage here. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth, and none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Now, this is a powerful passage, and you can find a lot of these passages uh, by the prophets, but this one by Ezekiel is powerful because the Lord is speaking through him, and he's commenting on why the people have been scattered. And so one of the narratives is similar to what I used to believe. is like, oh, well, the Jews were just loved to sin. Uh, they just didn't have enough faith. And that's a partial truth. But what Ezekiel is saying here, what the Holy Spirit is saying through Ezekiel is that the people fell away because their leaders exploited them. And that's a, that changes the narrative. That changes the way we see it because we realize that, like, wow, that religion plays a huge part in how people see God. And if this is the reason that many people fall away, then we have to take a look at that. All right, so... We come to Jesus, several hundred years have passed, and this, the temple has been rebuilt. Um, the people are excited, and because now they can, you know, observe the, the sacrifices. Um, and so, but unfortunately, the system of exploitation has begun again. And so, uh, we're going to be looking at John 2, and this is during the time of the Passover. Look at that. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. 
And making a whip of cords, he drew them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us doing these things? Jesus answered him, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will, take, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. What were the signs he was doing, you ask? Uh, we actually have the same account in Matthew, and it says that after this occurred, he started uh, ministering to the sick, and he was healing the cripples. He was healing the blind. Praise Jesus. So, kind of pull us up to where we've come to is, in the Old Testament, we see that constantly God is putting people in charge of a system to help them come to peace with him. The sacrificial system was made to point to Jesus, but in the meantime, that, that there would be peace between God and man. But constantly, the leaders who God entrusted would use that, that power to manipulate people. And constantly... God is destroying <laughs> uh, those systems that were used to manipulate the people. So we get with Jesus. And so I don't know if you're like me when you, you know, see this uh, passage and, you know, he's, you know, taking a whip of cords. You're like, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? You know, haven't you read the New Testament? What's, what's going on? Um, <laughs> and, like, why is he, you know, flipping over tables? Like, what, like, what was the big deal? And so it can be kind of hard for us in, you know, 21st century to connect with what exactly was happening and the, the exploitation that was occurring. And so we're going to kind of put our uh, imagination to use here. God's given us an imagination um, not so that we're not only experiencing the Bible intellectually, but we can experience emotionally. So if it helps you to close your eyes, go for it. So we're going to imagine what it's like to be a person um, in the temple when this would have occurred. So imagine you're a fisherman. You've been a fisherman your whole life. It's what kind of, it pays the bills, it provides for your family, but there's some problems because you run your own business, you have costs. You know, you, uh, you have to buy a boat, and you keep doing repairs, but you got to keep buying a new one, a new one. You got to pay bills. Uh, you also had to pay the Romans taxes. You got to pay local taxes. And here's the thing is that at this time, there's no social security. So you got to start saving up because here's the thing is that the last 10, 15 years have been pretty brutal and your back is absolutely falling apart. But there's another problem is that your daughter, your beautiful baby girl, was born with a birth defect and she can't see and she's crippled and so the likelihood of her getting married is pretty slim so what does that mean it means that when you die there's going to be no one to take care of her and she's probably going to become a beggar 
or possibly worse, if you get my drift. And this might seem like a stretch, but this was, you know, there's no social security, there's no disability, there's no government assistance, there's, you either have the money or you're begging. That's it. And so, you, you realize that you're going to have to start working more if you're going to have enough money to save up for yourself and for your daughter. So you start working more shifts. You start going out on the water longer, which makes your back hurt even worse. You know, you just start thinking, like, how is this going to all work out? Because you know that you only have a couple good years left. And you start to stress out, and you start to wonder, how is God going to provide for my family? How is God going to provide for my baby girl? And then Passover comes, and you think, okay, like, it's time. I have to buy a sacrifice and then go to the temple. Because it was understood that during Passover, everyone had to give a sacrifice. And so you buy a dove because that's all you can afford, or a pigeon, I should say. You buy some pigeons and you bring it to the temple and you offer your sacrifice to the priest. But they say, well, what's wrong? There's no blemish. Oh, no, there's a blemish. Well, you haven't even looked at it. And so you start to argue back and forth with the priest, but he puts his foot down and says, I cannot accept this. And you ask, okay, so if I can't use this, then what can I use? Well, we have some temple certified uh, pigeons right over here. And, now, and then you experience what we all experience when we go to Disney World or a, you know, a sports game where everything is completely overpriced and there's nothing you can do about it because you're stuck there. And so you go and you're like, okay, fine, I'll pay this exorbitant price. And you go to pay for it, but then the priest says, oh, I'm sorry, like we don't accept that money. And you're like, what do you mean? we don't accept your money. We don't accept the Roman coin. The Roman coin is evil. Well, what do I do? Well, you have to use the temple certified currency, which is pretty much worthless anywhere else in the empire, uh, except it's just worthy here. So you go and you go to the money changer and you change out the money uh, for the temple coin. And they are charging service fee after service fee. And then you realize that after everything, you're still not going to have enough money now to buy the sacrifice. Now here's the thing is that this isn't a choice. This is before Jesus' sacrifice. If you don't put the sacrifice down, then guess what? Your sins are on you. You're cursed. And so you start falling into despair because you don't know what to do and you realize like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to dig into my savings to pay for this sacrifice. And then you pay for <laughs> the sacrifice, and you, you're, you're just in absolute despair and shame. Because here you are, you're in front of your family, and you're, you, know, you can barely pay for just a simple little sacrifice. And, and you start to wonder, like, how am I actually going to get ahead in life? And you can't understand why there's all these rules that are taking your money away from you. And then there's this anger that starts to build up because you start to wonder, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't have to be this hard to provide and survive. And you're about to walk out and never come back. Because honestly, like, if this is, if this is the kingdom of God, then why would I want to be a part of it? And you're about to give up on everything. But as you're about to walk out, you start to hear a rumble catches your 
catches your ear and you turn around and, and you start to realize that there are all these, these oxen are moving out and all these pigeons are flying up into the air. And like there's just so many pigeons, you can't even see the sun because something has just been released and you can't even see what's happening. And you're wondering, what is going on? So you try to get closer. You're trying to be careful because you don't want to get trampled. And suddenly you see this man behind this huge ruckus that's just causing everyone to go crazy in the temple. And there's this man, he has a whip, and he's hitting the ground. And the funny thing is, is that no one's, uh, no one's touching him. <laughs> he's not laying a hand on anyone, but no one wants to put a hand on him. And you see that, wow, who is this guy? And you get closer and you realize that this must be the Messiah. And he goes and he starts flipping over the money tables. And you see that all the money that was on those tables were people's livelihoods. Thousands of people's livelihoods taken away from them. He flips it over. He shoots them all out. And you think like, wow, maybe this is the guy that the prophet spoke about who would rescue us. And then he looks at you, and he points at you, and he has you come over. And you're a little scared because he's got a whip of cords in his hands. But you walk over to him, and you can see there's this, like, this fire in his eyes. And then as you get closer, you start to realize that he actually, his eyes are watering up when he sees you. And he says to you, I saw what they did to you. I saw what they did to you. Then he gives you a big hug, and he says, no more. And as he's giving you this hug, you start to feel your back straighten up. You feel this fire go down your back, and you, you start to realize, oh, my gosh, my back's been healed. <laughs> and then you think, oh, my, if I've been healed, maybe my daughter can be healed. And so you bring your baby girl, and he lays his hands on her, and she is healed. She's no longer crippled. She can now see. You see her dancing in the streets, and suddenly other people start seeing what's happening, and they start joining in. <laughs> so the question is, is, what is God's response to spiritual abuse? And his response is, he mourns with you. He gets angry with you. He sees you in your place. And he will avenge you. He will bring the truth out. But most importantly, he wants to heal you. Let's see what God wants to do. <laughs> So I want you to close your eyes. I want you to partner with Holy Spirit. And this isn't, um, this isn't something to where, you know, you get all super introspective. You're just asking the Holy Spirit a question. Have I been wounded by someone I trust? If the answer is no, that's fine. That's great. But if you're hearing it, yes, I want the Holy Spirit to show you that moment. 
Now I want you to ask Holy Spirit, where was Jesus when this happened? What was he thinking? What was he feeling? Now I want you to ask Holy Spirit, what does Jesus want to give you? He's taking away the pain. What is he giving you in return? I want you to continue listening and receiving. If you come today and you don't know Jesus, and the biggest part has probably kept you away is you're afraid (laughs) of being manipulated. You're afraid of being duped by religion. I totally get that. But you're here for a reason. And the reason is that you are attracted to Jesus. There's something pulling you in. Not only that, Jesus is seeking you out. He has been seeking you out. If you are someone that that just resonated with and you want to give your life to Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. All right, and now maybe you are someone that you used to be really passionate about God. Maybe you are someone who is really passionate about Jesus and going to church. And, you know, you really trusted someone in the church and they let you down. Um, that they manipulated you or maybe they just, they just didn't see you as a person. They just saw you maybe for your, uh, for your performance, your gifts, uh, and they didn't actually care about you as a person. I'm just going to ask you, uh, if you want to, the opportunity to rededicate your life to Jesus. If that is you today, if you could raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. All right, I want to let Angela close us in prayer.